Welcome everyone. My name is Hamza Ejaz. I'm a resident at the University of Cincinnati and today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Chuck Amaran. He's a department chair at the Department of University of Medicine within Case Western Reserve University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Yes, definitely. So let's start at the beginning. What drew you to the field of nursing medicine? Everybody, as you know, has their own learning style and sitting in a classroom and listening to somebody lecture at me was not my learning style. Um, I'm more of a kinesthetic learner. I learn by doing. I was fortunate enough, uh, since I was in uh, medical school in Toledo, to be training with the first emergency medicine from the University of Cincinnati, Bruce Janiak. And he was kind enough to let me hang out in this emergency department. So I would go to class for as long as I could tolerate it and then go to the emergency department. And if we were in the renal section, I'd try to figure out why somebody had kidney disease, or if we were in the cardiac session, I would interview people with chest pain, and uh, Dr. Janiak's group was very good to me. They let me do things I would never let my student do, but that was a different time. Right on, right on. And then, now obviously you've been practicing medicine, emergency medicine particularly, for quite a bit of time. Now, have you seen the transition of emergency medicine over your career so far? The battles that uh, we had to fight back 40 years ago when I came out into practice, they're, they're all settled now. I'll just tell you a few fun stories. Um, I was practicing within a few weeks of finishing my residency and I was in the emergency department and somebody came in and needed to be intubated and no big deal, I'm an emergency physician, I intubated them. Well, the next day I got invited to appear before the Department of Anesthesiology who let to know who was I and how dare I intubate somebody. So those, those battles are long gone. Um, we went through the battles with ultrasound, we went through the battles with procedural sedation. It's not that there aren't still battles in emergency medicine, but that's a lot of what I've seen is the transition. But the other thing that's been a transition is hospitals have come to realize that the emergency department is, as we all know, the front door to their hospital. Uh, in many academic medical centers, and particularly uh, Line, we account for 80% of the hospital admissions. We account for half of their net operating income. That gives you power that we didn't have when I first came out of training. Yeah, that's very fair. When you have, when you bring that much to the table, metaphorically and literally, uh, you can have a lot of influence potentially for sure. So that's, that's helpful insight. Now, touching a little bit more about obviously, you've been an avid researcher over your career. Um, you've, you have particular interest in heart failure, asthma, COPD. Uh, what helps you establish like research as a niche for yourself? And then within research, how did you then go about determining that those were the area of uh, interest that you wanted to, to discuss in research? One of the things that's true in academic emergency medicine is most academic emergency physicians don't publish. I think, I, I think I've seen a figure, now this is a while ago, but it's something like 20% of academic emergency physicians publish anything. Um, and that's the currency of academics is to be published. One of the things I talk to my junior faculty about is even if you don't want to be a researcher, you need to write something, write a case report, write a review. That's the currency. I hope they stay with my program forever, but people's careers change and this is what you have to show for the time you spend. It's wonderful that you've done a great job seeing patients. We count on that and that's value. But when you go to someplace else, they assume that you're competent. They assume that you're going to be great at taking care of patients. They want to know what do you bring to our program. So one of the things I 
talk to my junior faculty about is because so few people publish in emergency medicine, if you publish four things on the same topic, you're the national expert. So what you want is you want a topic and you want a tool. And if you have those things, you can publish. Um, I started off doing cardiac arrest research, but uh, quickly realized that there was uh, there was a group that was controlling the publication pipeline for cardiac arrest, and I wasn't part of that group. So I wasn't going to get my stuff published. And even though what I was doing was interesting, uh, it just wasn't going to be where I could do something good. So the tool I had was my mentor at Hanford Hospital, Rich Nowak, had an interest in asthma. The tool I had was a spirometer. Okay, what can I do with a spirometer? Well, I can look at different ways to treat asthma, COPD, and measure them with a spirometer, and see how useful the spirometer was. It, it was an interesting story also when I got the spirometer, the head of pulmonary called me into his office, but he didn't go with the spirometer. <laughs> so I'm doing research. He said, I think this is a great thing, because you're going to find stuff, and you're going to refer it to me. So this is a pipeline for me. It's the same thing I tried to convince the uh, head of radiology about. He wasn't buying the argument. I said, we're going to find stuff to the the sound, and they're going to get a CAT scan. That's just the way it goes. And in fact, if you look at the statistics of the people we do ultrasounds of, about half of them go on to get another diagnostic finding study because we have found something that needs further elucidation. So getting back to your question about research, find a topic, find a tool that you use, Whatever the tool is, it could be a device, it could be a database, it could be a collaborator, but find that tool, something that you're interested in, and publish in it, and you'll get known for that. Yeah, and that's, that's helpful advice you now for, for the researchers out there listening. You touched on this a little bit in regards to the currency of academic you know, medicine or the currency of academic emergency medicine and the setting of research and publications. Now, you know, let's say emergency medicine has been around for 50-ish years, give or take and hopefully we have a very long trajectory ahead in terms of how we're going to continue to grow within the house of medicine altogether. Now, what do you anticipate as the currency evolving within the house of medicine for, you know, for, for uh, promoting academic emergency medicine? The opportunities are endless. There's, there is so much that you can study and make a name for yourself. Um, one of the things you, you see as you progress in your career is people develop niches. And, and then sometimes that changes. So I did asthma and COPD research for years. About five years ago, I was meeting with my chief medical officer, and I was, it was a little more than five years ago, I was complaining to him about the issue about the patients with opioid use disorder coming to the emergency department. We'd see the same people over and over again. And unfortunately, some of them for those who couldn't save them, but, but we see the same people, and I we didn't have anything at our hospital. We had had one addiction psychiatrist who had left. So there was no program. There was no place I could refer these patients to to help them. And the truism, of course, of any manager is when somebody comes through with a problem, you say, yeah, great, go fix it. So I complained about this to my CMO. He said, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Go fix it. Okay. So the route to fixing it was I became um, boarded in addiction medicine. They, have, they still have a grandfather clause. Um, and it wasn't hard to get qualified to take it because um, the person who was the executive director for the American Board of Preventive Medicine had been the executive director of ABEM, so I knew him very well, and Gail Donofrio at Yale was the one who vetted the emergency medicine candidates, and I 
worked with Gail for a number of years. So, okay, fine, I can take the test. I passed. Then my CMO said, now you need a fellowship. Okay, fine. I had been the, uh, the chair of GME in my hospital for 15 years. It's, it's an open book test. I know how to write an application. So I put together an application, and now we have a fellowship. But that changed my career. So now my research is in addiction medicine. Because if you have a fellowship, you have to show academic output, and, and it serves two purposes. So I can count them twice. I can count them for the addiction medicine fellowship when I have to fill out the ACGME paperwork, and I can count them for the emergency medicine paperwork when we have to qualify with the ACGME. Right on. It's very helpful. The two birds in one stone concept, you know. And then I like the fact that you mentioned the conversation with the CMO about when you present a problem, you better have a solution or a solution to offer as well, um, as opposed to just presenting a problem and being, you know, the complainer essentially in that regards. Um, and I also want to touch a little bit more. You touched on the fact that you've previously been, uh, you know, the chair of GME. I understand you were also the director of your university department previously as well. You're now obviously the department chair and have been the chair for quite a while. And I want to discuss, you know, how these roles differed. Um, like, you know, for example, like your role as a department uh, director, uh, ED director, compared to now as a uh, department chair. The role itself has changed in, in many ways, um, and so now it's a little different. Back back then, I'm not sure you could tell a whole lot of difference between the two. But but now the role is the people that are the ED directors. They're operations based, and and for me, actually, that appealed to me. I love to fix things. Uh, my air conditioner is broken at home. Okay, let me try and fix it. If I do a bad job, I'll try and fix it. Uh, you know, the door is broken, I'll try and fix it. Plumbing, I won't touch, but electrical, I can do that. So I love to fix things. So operational stuff really appealed to me. You know, problem in triage. Okay, let me fix that. Uh, we have a problem with the referral to some group or the other. Okay, let me fix that. These days, as department chair, it's much more of a strategic role. What's going on in the hospital? What's the hospital strategic plans? How do we fit in with those strategic plans? What do we do about the nursing shortage? How do we utilize our medics to the fullest extent? Um, how is it that I can help the faculty grow their academic career in the face of all the financial challenges out there? Like everybody, we're, we're part of the RVU base. You know, how do you help the faculty balance out the need to generate RVUs because they have a family and they have debt against the need to progress academically. Those are big challenges. Yeah. I mean, that's very, you know, that the difference, though, between the operational day-to-days and then the, the larger, bigger picture of leading the overall organization of the department and how those vary. And I obviously understand that. Now, I would love for you to touch a little more about what your quote-unquote day-to-day looks like in the department chair role um, or a week, you know, a typical week in the department chair. I understand that, you know, just as there's not a typical day in the emergency department, you know, there's very similarly not a typical day in the role of a department uh, chair as well. But if you can just walk uh, the listeners through a little bit of what your day-to-day or week-to-week experience is like as a, day, as a chair now. Um, certainly. Well, uh, first of all, I still see patients. Um, I, I love seeing patients. It's... It's always uh, an interesting challenge. Um, uh, I personally gravitate more to the sick medical patients than the trauma patients. I, I don't know. Sometimes with trauma, it's uh, how many cascades can we order? I know there's more to it than that, but sometimes it seems that way as opposed to the sick medical patients where there's something wrong with this person. I'm not quite sure what it is. Let me try and figure it out. Sometimes I figure it out. Sometimes we have something I just couldn't even imagine. So I do that. Uh, the other fun thing I do clinically is I run the inpatient addiction consult. 
So that's a blast because I go upstairs to the floors. The inpatient team has consulted me. I go up there, they go, what are you doing here? We call for a consult, here I am. And in many ways, doing the inpatient addiction consults fits emergency medicine. The patients are sick, they're having active withdrawal, they're having delirium. Uh, so I help the inpatient team sort through, um, here, here's the addiction stuff, and did you think about maybe the fact that you've had them on benzos for 10 days, that now they've got benzo-induced delirium, so I'm switching to phenobar. So that's very satisfying. So that's, that's the clinical aspect of it. Every Wednesday is a, a teaching day for me. I'm teaching the emergency medicine residents in the morning, and I'm teaching the addiction medicine fellows in the afternoon. Um, so I, I love to teach, especially for residents these days are, are so smart. They're much smarter than I am. Whenever I tell them, they, they Google it and say, no, you're wrong. Well, I'm not wrong, but here's why I'm not wrong. Um, or they'll say, well, should we do this? And I go, oh, I, I know you may have heard that on somebody else's podcast, but I've been doing this for a while, and so here's my experience. Here's why I think this will, this will work. So they challenge you all the time. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And then I spend time in meetings where I'm influencing administrators to do the right thing. Fair. That's very fair. That's helpful. Uh, kind of just knowing that balance exists between the educational aspect, the clinical aspect as well, and then the administrative or the leadership uh, aspect of that in terms of the meetings and helping to influence uh, the direction that the department heads. So that's really helpful in terms of the insight for what kind of life is to be a role, uh, in the role of the chair. Have you, so obviously you've now been in a variety of leadership positions. Did you always envision yourself to become a department chair or is that something that kind of the properties represented itself at the right time? Or how, how did that career trajectory pan itself out for you? I came into emergency medicine in its infancy. It, it was very typical for people finishing emergency medicine residencies to be a chair, a director within a year or two of finishing residency. It's not that way anymore, but at the time there was such a shortage of emergency medicine trained physicians that if you had any administrative ambition, you could step into a position very quickly out of residency. I was way too young, way too mature, way too inexperienced. I learned by fire, but uh, I survived. Okay, right on. And then also I want to touch a little bit more about now, as your role as a department chair, you're in charge of new hires and looking at the direction, as you mentioned, you know, where the department is heading. Um, so when, you know, what advice would you give to new residents or to residents who are looking for the first job out of residency or out of fellowship or for the junior faculty who are looking to transition into a senior faculty role or to a different role? What advice would you give to them looking for the first jobs or for that transition job? I give a lecture to my senior residents every year on how to look for a job. So I'll give you the same advice that I give them. Definitely, yeah. Don't pick your first job for the wrong reason. Don't pick it because somebody's offering you $5,000 more. I understand people have big debts, and so $5,000 is $5,000, but it isn't. They come out there in a 60% or more tax bracket, so the difference in a little bit of salary, although it may look big and may be appealing to someone who's got a lot of medical school debts, I understand that. But the difference in what you actually take home is, is very small. So you want to you want to pick your first job with the intention of how can this help me develop my career. A little bit of money is not going to make it. Opportunity is what you want to do. So when they ask me, can I negotiate my first job? My answer is negotiate for opportunity. Look ahead five years. You want to you be known for something. And the number of things you can do in emergency medicine is endless. So you want to be the 
You want to be the EMR expert? Great. You want to be the patient experience expert? Wonderful. You want to be the billing and coding expert? Great. You want to do EMS? Wonderful. There's all kinds of things out there. But think about the fact that I don't know what's going to happen in emergency medicine in 10, 15, 20 years. I don't think anybody can. So what you want to do is you want to be prepared to be flexible. You want to have something on your resume that says, I'm special and I can bring something to the table. I tell the same thing to the incoming interns, which is when you think about the fact that you're going to be applying for a job, and you want to have a niche. Develop that during your residency. I know residency is hard. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of anxiety. But there's also a lot of opportunity. There are faculty here in our program who know everything there is to know about, not everything, but they know a lot to know about EMS or informatics or billing or administration or negotiation. Learn from them. Pick that up as a niche so that when you go to apply for a job, you can say, I'm finishing from a great emergency medicine residency program. We have a wonderful program. I'm finishing from a great emergency medicine program, and I also have this other talent. Because as a department chair, when I'm hiring people, I presume that somebody coming out of an EM residency is competent. What I worry about is, can they talk to people? Can they talk to the patients? Can they talk to the consultants? And do they have the ability to make decisions? Because those are the things that bog people down. And then for the academic side of the house, do they bring something to the table that's going to promote my academic mission? They're going to be a great teacher. They want to work with medical students. They want to do research. They want to do something. So for the academic side of the house, they have to have all those things. On the community hospital side of the house, it's the three things that I talked about. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you already actually answered my follow-up question in terms of the flip side for what you look for when you're looking for a new hire. So diving a little bit more into that, so and it's and I've heard varying advice or varying opinions on that or where faculty or you know departments will hire for particular roles and you know in terms of what is negotiable and not negotiable. And we kind of touched on that conversation a little bit already, but can you dive a little bit more about like what exactly faculty or departments look for when they're looking for uh, a new hire, like whether it's for a particular niche they already are trying to build up a little bit more, or just trying to recruit general faculty as well. Like some of the nuances behind, you know, from the departmental leadership perspective. Uh, I look for somebody who's passionate about something. I can assign people with roles, but if they're not passionate about it, sometimes people switch switch their, their interests. I've hired people and they've said, I want to do you know, X. And then they get to go get into it and they say, you know, I really love this simulation training. I, I think I want to get trained in simulation. Okay, wonderful. You know, you have something you're passionate about. Figure out what your niche is. You have something you're passionate about. So it's really that. Somebody who, who's driven to do something. If they're driven to do something, then they'll do it. It's uh, one of the things my old mentor told me, which is an old saw that other people have heard, which is, you can tame a racehorse, you can't race a donkey. I like that saying, honestly, I've never, I personally have not heard of that one before, but the fact that you bring that up, that's actually very, uh, I would say, applicable to hiring and, you know, the concept of HR management altogether. Uh, so that's a, that's a nice little analogy to put together, so I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I think that's generally the significant amount of time that all the questions that I had uh, from our listeners. And, you know, thank you so much for your time today, uh, for sitting down and obviously during your busy schedule, sharing the time to have this discussion and to offer your advice. So, Dr. Ehrman, really appreciate you uh, for everything you've done for our specialty and for what you know for your time today as well. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening for everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you. Thank you for having me.